Okay, today I'm cutting to the chase. I'm Fitzko Hall, this is the Dirtbag Diaries. We've got a lot of ground to cover, three decades worth. From a Tahoe sledding hill seen through the imagination of an eight-year-old, all the way to the avalanche-prone slopes of British Columbia's Selkirk Mountains. I'm very proud to present a new voice. Becca Cajal, my wife and editor here at the Dirtbag Diaries, emerges from the stage wings and steps up to the mic to give us all these things. A story about getting older and skiing faster. As always, today's show is made possible by Patagonia. Oh, did I, did I forget to mention that there was a helicopter? Stories are always better with a helicopter. Come on, get in. There's three feet of fresh snow. And this bird, this bird is ready to fly. I heard the bright yellow helicopter long before it appeared from the horizon. As the helicopter landed, the churning blade sent snow flying from the frozen landing pad. I shielded my eyes with a jacket sleeve, but stole the quickest glance like a child unable to resist ruining a surprise. A week earlier, I wouldn't have guessed I'd be here, at a landing strip on the edge of Canada's rugged Valhalla Range. The people surrounding me weren't my regular backcountry ski partners. In fact, I hardly knew anything about them, other than they are all incredible skiers. My husband was a thousand miles away, stuck at work. The avalanche danger was borderline terrible. Yet these thoughts... The ifs, the buts, and the why nots, the looping doubt that can consume the mind, were nowhere to be found. I grew up skiing with my dad and sister in Tahoe. A lot of those early memories blur together. I remember the warmth of fires in the tiny cabin. I remember staring down an impossibly steep run, gulping as my dad dropped in, and doing an eight-year-old's best to keep up with her father. But out of all these memories, one stands out. Something my sister and I simply refer to as Screamer. 87 has started out with a bang and about two feet of snow. Here's my dad reading from an old journal. Becca, Mandy, and I went skiing Friday, and the girls all went sledding yesterday as it was snowing all day. The girls found a sledding run called the Screamer, which went through the woods. Only bad news is the 49ers were routed and the Bears and Jets lost. Entered Robert E. Cameron, January 4th, 1987. We bundled up in long johns, gloves, hats, and boots. We toddled out the door, saucer in tow, and surveyed the small sledding hill like two explorers entering a mountain range. The sledding day began in the mild sections of the driveway, then progressed to the steeper embankments from the road until our eyes were drawn to it, to Screamer what seemed like a huge precipice. Do you remember when we built the run that we called the Screamer? Vaguely. I vaguely remember that. I feel like there were some bumps some bumps in it. <laughs> um, and it seems, if I remember correctly, that it was a rather long, long run. I don't remember how we decided who would go first. But I do remember sitting at the top of the hill, excited but also scared at the prospect of sledding down. I situated myself on the saucer and pushed off. My hands tightened on the saucer's handles. I hit a bump and launched into the air towards a tree that we had decided we couldn't possibly hit. I let out a squeal in anticipation of an imminent collision and closed my eyes, 
The collision never came. I landed lopsided on my side, with my hands still gripped in the saucer's handles. I opened my eyes and remembered thinking, I want to do that again. Twenty years later, my sledding hills have gotten a little bit bigger. I learned to backcountry ski on the mountains that dot the Tahoe Rim. I honed it on the Cascade Volcanoes. After every lung-burning climb and swift ski descent, the same thought flashes through my mind. I want to do that again. While life has gotten more complicated, that same simple hunger for just one more run draws me back to the mountains of my youth. I became officially unemployed in October. Usually in the circle of friends we all tend to keep, unemployment is something to celebrate. But this time, it felt different. I was 30 years old, tired of the boom-bust cycles of seasonal jobs. My friends with kids and mortgages said things like, you're so lucky. And while some days I felt content with my break from doing research biology, many days were filled with apprehension and the question of, what was I doing with my life? I spent the better part of eight years packing my belongings into a truck and moving to the next field site, Alaska, Arizona, Oregon, California, and back again. In the winters, I skied and tuned skis. At 28, grad school seemed like the right step towards a career. I guess I thought I'd outgrow skiing, like a teenager moving past the self-centeredness that can define adolescence. I mean, I wasn't about to be the next sponsored skier, but that was never my intention. So what was the point? My plan was to complete my master's, then pursue a PhD, and ultimately become a researcher. But two years of work and study only illuminated more difficult questions and even less satisfying answers. My muscles begged for movement that I didn't have time for. I stopped sleeping. I felt as though I didn't see my husband for a week at a time. I missed the energy that pulses through a ski town when the forecast calls for snow. I couldn't imagine striking a balance between skiing, climbing, my friends and family with the time demands of a research professor. As I finished grad school, my goals shifted, but had yet to realign into a tangible idea. In the mountains, you head for high ground, follow the ridge to the summit's tidy conclusions, but life is murkier. Pass closed at this hour due to extreme avalanche conditions. Snow plus wind gusting up to 100 miles an hour make it very difficult to see up there. White Pass is also in early January. Massive storms raked across the Cascades and yielded feet upon feet of incredible snow. It was a classic La Nina year. I fell into an old familiar rhythm: wake before dawn, check the weather, drive to the mountain, ski until the first tingle of exhaustion, and return to spend an afternoon working and checking job postings like an old angler too stubborn to admit that his favorite fishing hole is fished out. This left the winter completely open. On a Tuesday, I met Jason and Jeremy to ski at our local mountain. I barely knew Jason and had never met Jeremy, but seeing as I was new to Seattle, I was working on making friends. Our conversations on the chairlift centered around their upcoming trip to the Valhalla Lodge in British Columbia. The Valhallas are renowned for light blower powder and lots of it. On average, 450 inches annually. It's somewhere backcountry skiers dream of going to, maybe once in their lifetime, akin to the North Shore of Oahu for surfers, or Patagonia for climbers. Their excitement was palpable. 
Jeremy got the text message while we were riding the chairlift. Matt, Jeremy's best friend, had to bail on the week-long hut trip, an adventure six months in the making. They had three days to fill two spots. Jeremy and Jason looked at me and half-jokingly offered me the place. I laughed and made short excuses about work that I didn't really have. You can wish all you want, you can talk to your Jason called that night. It was a done deal. Matt was out. When does an opportunity like this fall in your lap? Still, uncertainties crept in. I met two of the people once, and it's been a handful of times with the other two. Never skied in the backcountry with any of them. Everything I had heard or read suggested the terrain was serious. I'm used to skiing with the boys, but I wasn't sure I could keep up. This was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity something I'd spent the last eight winters working towards in some regards. There was no reason not to go. I helped load gear into Jeremy's blue 1995 Chevy Astro van. I met Mark, who was with the other late edition, and we piled in. An hour later, six of us, Jeremy, Mark, Jason, Siri, Shane, and I, were packed into the van, along with our gear, most of our food for the week, and eight pairs of skis. Are you happier that you have donuts now? Oh, are you taping me? Oh, shit, I'm really happy to donuts. We debated the quickest route to Canada, stopped for the best donuts in Washington, swapped stories about where we skied, and dreamed of where we'd like to. Immediately, I felt at home. <laughs> we went the wrong way, but now we're going to powder <laughs> The pilot delivered the short safety talk. I was too excited to listen. Soon we were buckled in, the rotor blades spun. The scraping metallic click of the doors locking punctuated the obvious. I was committed. The rotor spun faster, and suddenly the ground was falling away, and we were rotating away from the parking lot. I looked over to Jason and Siri. None of us had ever been in a helicopter before. We conversed awkwardly through the headsets, pointing out features and lines we'd like to ski. Tight couloirs that ran for hundreds of vertical feet, large alpine bowls, and sometimes we just sat looking out and listening to the whir of the rotor blades. The quick change from parking lot to helicopter to mountain basin left my brain bewildered. Grabbing my gear, I looked up at the wind blowing thin streams of snow off the top of Woden Peak. The face looked unskiable. The near-vertical rock bands held snow in just a few places along the upper rocky face. But the alpine bowls in the ridgeline were filled with snow, and very few tracks. We started skinning that afternoon around two. My lungs absorbed the thinner air. I worked to control the battle that raged between my fresh legs and my beating heart. Jeremy passed the trail-breaking torch to me, and I made my way towards the top, cutting through the four inches of new snow. I stripped my skins, paired up with Shane, and prepped for the first of many runs to come. My first turns were cautious as I tested the consistency of the snow. The dense, icy wind buff quickly gave way to soft, powdery snow. I felt like I was floating, 
unable to feel the bottom as plumes of snow arced upward with each long turn. We seamlessly moved from an open face to a shallow gully dotted with pint-sized trees, and then plunged down towards a frozen lake. I smiled, giddy with excitement, not exactly sure how I ended up here, but glad that I did. In the early evenings, we'd stoke the wood stove and hang out our gear to dry. We'd rehash where we'd been, how much vert we'd skied, and where we would go tomorrow. We nursed the few beers we had brought. Cooking was an elaborate affair. A chef by trade, Jeremy seared tuna loins with sautéed kale and cranberry beans, and served braised lamb shakes and quail with Brussels sprouts, wild mushrooms, and polenta. We brought enough books to start a small library, but no one seemed to read much, content to sit around the large table listening to Jeremy and Siri playfully debate and pass around the whiskey or rum and chunks of chocolate. I'll bring the positive energy. I'll always, I'll always ski another run. Always. In the summer, the Valhalla Lodge would be near the shore of an alpine lake, nestled amongst trees in the basin below Woden Peak. In the winter, situated at nearly 7,000 feet, we had access to 10 skiable basins filled with open bowls and tree skiing, with a few coulars thrown in for good measure. We could hike about 1,000 vertical feet and then ski down 3,000 vertical feet towards the valley floor. Each morning as we filled ourselves with coffee, tea, and eggs or oatmeal, we planned where we'd ski for the day. For six people who'd never skied together, we matched up pretty well. Eventually, we'd set on a basic outline and head out for the day. We crisscrossed each other's tracks through staggered pine trees on a steep face through feathery snow. While we pointed out and fantasized about skiing couloirs or narrow avalanche paths with small trees, the whooping of a wind-loaded slope made us cautious. Our timing with Mother Nature was off just slightly for skiing the more complex lines. Still, we'd ski three to 4,000 feet in what seemed like a few hours. I would notice the sun dropping behind the range and realize that the afternoon had set in. A sprint up 700 feet in the dusky light before racing down through powdery snow in the fuzzy darkness marked the end of some days. I wanted to hike right back up and do it again. I smiled with overwhelming giddiness, delighted at the ease of following the skin track and another safe descent. The weight that had worked my head into knots back in Seattle had eased into the relaxed rhythm of a beating heart and fading light. On our last day, brilliant sunshine washed over the range, but the wind was howling, scouring the fresh snow into wind buff. After six days, my legs were stiff with lactic acid buildup. Still, I wanted to ski. Here I am, hugging Becca, doing a beacon check. At a 2.1 meter distance, here comes Shane, rocking out to Probably Sinead O'Connor, Tori Amos. 1.5 meters, he crosses my skis. We opted for new terrain on a different aspect. Even if the snow wasn't great, it was something different. Hard snow and steep sections made skinning difficult. 
Every time I looked up, Shane seemed to be further and further ahead. I was losing motivation to keep my steady pace. I was fascinated by how the wind had carved out snow from around the skin track and created two raised platforms, like railroad tracks, to skin across. I stopped to look at the white clouds rocketing over the ridgeline, contrasting with the blue sky. The inclines deepened briefly, and then I was on top of the ridge. The wind howled as I hunkered down next to Shane on the lee side of a rock outcrop to wait for the group. Cold and tiredness trickled into my body. I wondered whether it would be better to do jumping jacks in the wind rather than to sit shivering. But really, I was too tired to stand up. The rest of the group stumbled in. We snapped pictures and laughed, all of us worn out from the week of skiing. We walked out to the ridge to peer into the adjacent basin. I stood there with friends, some of whom I hadn't known a week before, looking out across a cirque and into the valley. The basin contoured up to the ridge, the ridge to a peak, before dropping away into another distant basin, and then the horizon. After a week of skiing, I was still awed and inspired by what I might find in those basins below. When I look back across the inner ranges through my own personal geography, I think of giggling with my sister as we wisp between trees. That memory becomes the whooping laughter of my best friends as we ski steeper lines through thigh-deep snow. As I slide across the years, snow gathers in small hissing waves that undulate along with me. If I follow that mental ridgeline towards the horizon, I find myself in the boots of an eight-year-old girl who hesitates at the top of a steep slope, but then resolves to keep up with her father. I am all of these things. The little girl chasing her father, the sister, a mountain woman, a wife, a scientist, a thinker. And as much as I may have tried in the past to think that I can grow out of it, I am a skier. A brilliant ski line down a cliff-studded face isn't going to change the world. It isn't going to broaden scientific knowledge or raise children. Days spent laughing with friends on tops of mountains won't help protect the forest I work to conserve as a biologist. Yet somehow, the act of skiing, the companionship of sharing these moments, they matter. Snow comes and goes. The connections, the relationships you make, they're lasting. A year from now, I would like to be back here, standing on this ridge. The six of us have already begun to plan all of our minds captured by the possibility of this place. I'm not sure where I will be or whether that perfect job will materialize. Those uncertainties can wait. In the meantime, there's nothing left to do but bring myself to the cornice edge, let the ski tips hang over, and breathe deeply before pushing off to slash three turns, pointing myself towards the promise of one more run. Becca spent the winter asserting her dominance over her husband by beating him up the skin track. She recently accepted another seasonal job running a field study on the Oregon coast. And now that she's proven she can write, that means I'm pretty much obsolete. Good thing I can cook and clean. We've got a very special guest designing for us today. Anya Miller, ripping boulderer, artist, architect, and all-around badass, stepped up and provided us with our cover work for today. In the coming days, look for a post on the site with more information about her work, her radical line of greeting cards, and where you can get them. Think Mother's Day, people. 
it's right around the corner. Music today. I'm so stoked about Ken Christensen. He's actually an honorary grandchild in the Kahal clan. Everything you've heard today is Ken, and when I say everything, I mean every instrument, every vocal, every plucked string is the work of this LA musician. He even wrote some of these cuts specifically for our show. Go to the website, you'll find all the pertinent links to his musical slash art blog. You can stream tracks and buy cuts there. Ken is as independent as it gets. Thanks to everyone who participated in our duct tape marketing survey. It was a huge success. So many good ideas. A veritable goldmine of story ideas. And you know... I mean, today, we've got Anya, we've got Ken. The Dirtbag Nation is out there. This is so much more than extreme sports and getting radical. This is about the soul of our culture, and I thank you for that. And I want you to know this. Our email address is always open, and we answer every email. Seriously, you are the Dirtbag Diaries. Your stories, your iTunes reviews, your support make this happen. That email is dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. And of course, a big thanks to our sponsors, Patagonia. We've just finished off our first year, and there's no way this project would still be breathing without their generous support. I'm Fitzcahal, but I couldn't do this alone. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Next time on the Dirtbag Diaries. And I just remember thinking, I'm going to be dead tomorrow. Half Dome's going to be there tomorrow. And that's just the way it is. And it's okay. In 1992, contributor Tom Broxon survived a 200-foot fall and a helicopter crash in the same day. He swore his accident wouldn't define who he was. And in the end, well, you're just going to have to listen.